0: All right. One of the one of the highest privileges that I get to have as a pastor is that I get to perform an awful lot of weddings. And since I've been a pastor, I've probably I think it's roughly 25 weddings that I've performed. That's a, It's a lot. Um, get to stand up. I mean, I love it other than having to wear a suit. I hate the suit. But I do have this uh, this principle that I will not perform a wedding for a couple that will not also go through premarital counseling So I require premarital counseling of any couple that wants to get married. It's generally we I meet with them four to six times And during premarital counseling, we do not talk so much about getting married. We talk about being married and That is one of the things about about marriage Uh, it's you get hyped up for that one day right I mean you get excited for that one day of the wedding you spend a ton of money on that wedding you get a dress that you're only gonna wear one time you know so a lot of energy and a lot of thought a lot of preparation go into getting married and there needs to be an awful lot more preparation going into being married and so my premarital counseling process is a lot talking about being married like who's gonna take out the trash What are your work hours going to be how are you going to spend money how many kids are you going to have what what gender kids i mean kendra and i kendra and i actually had perfect agreement that we are going to have two boys and a girl jesus has not listened to us there and he (laughs) surprised us with a girl i don't know why i thought that i had control over that but uh there is a there is a there's a plateau or there's an ex- this experience of getting married but then there's the lifelong experience of being married and one of the things that i say to a lot of couples when i perform the marriage is that you have to now forget how to be single if you get married and start continue living like you're not married or like you're single we're gonna have a problem and uh right i mean you have to unlearn how to be single once you get married you have to begin to learn how to be married. You, you can't just, if you're a guy or, or a lady, you can't just like up and leave whenever you want without telling anyone. You have to communicate that stuff. You can't just spend money without communicating that or, or having a conversation. You can't just up and move. You can't, I mean, there's a lot of things that you just can't do anymore when you're married. And it's, you're unlearning one lifestyle and learning another lifestyle. Right? And as exciting as the wedding day itself might be, the marriage has ups and downs, uh, good days and bad days. And the ability to follow through for the long term is a lot harder than planning a marriage ceremony. I can plan a marriage ceremony in 10 minutes. They're all basically the same. Let me just take the one I did last month and put two new names in it. You know, maybe flip a passage or something like that. They're roughly the same. but Ceremonies are roughly the same, but every marriage is unique. They all have different trials, different opportunities, different ups, different downs. Now, I want you to take that idea. I want you to apply it to your faith in Jesus. There is a moment, if if you're a Christian, and many of us have had this moment, where you made a decision to follow Jesus. You decided to give the control of your life to him we might say that you converted or we might say that you got saved or were born again those are all accurate terms to describe what happens when you become a believer when you become a christian the issue then becomes how will you live after that not not the issue at that point is not have you become a christian but how do you be a christian how do you live from that point on you probably have either met Or maybe have been that person who had a dramatic moment where you gave your life to Jesus and a year later it was like it never happened if you've never been that person I bet you've met someone who has I mean I know we've we've had many of them in our church and and every one of them breaks my heart and, and frustrates me people that seem to have this excitement and this zeal at the beginning but then they don't know how to live it out once the excitement lives off and when it comes down to actually the nitty gritty of it, right? And so we have surfacey, shallow, fake Christianity and, and fake Christians who have had a moment where they made some kind of decision, but it really had no impact and on the, on the, no bearing on how they live their lives. That missing piece there, that missing piece is called... Here's a big word for you. Sanctification. That that moment after you make the decision to follow Jesus, where then you begin to live your life differently, that is called sanctification. Sanctification is the experience of being made holy. And the opposite of holy is not wicked. The opposite of holy is common. Common when holy when we talk about holy we mean something that is set apart for a very unique and specific use we have dishes in our house that we only put out when the fancy guests come by okay we can eat off paper plates any other day not that we do but we could you know i like You do paper plates, but when the guests come over, you bust out these nice dishes, right? Those nice dishes are set apart for a very unique and uh, and specific use. The paper plates are common. Now, here's the thing. Jesus sees every one of us as holy and set apart for a specific use. But a lot of times we treat ourselves and live like we're paper plates. Right? I mean, we're like, you don't throw out China, you throw out a paper plate. And we live our lives either throwing people out, treating them, using them up once, throwing them out, or allowing ourselves to be used and uh, thrown out and treated poorly. Sanctification is the experience of being made holy. True conversion is followed up with consecration. Consecration is just another word for sanctification. But true, legitimate, authentic conversion is followed up with a some change in the way that you live your life. And uh, I want to talk about today this idea of Jesus being our sanctifier last week we talked about Jesus being our Savior and uh, I actually drew your attention to these four images over here on the left Jesus our Savior sanctifier healer and coming King I have it in a different form up on the screen and if Jared you can give me the next slide this is just kind of broken down for you to understand how those four things are put together it is not A drink stirrer, a wine glass, a beer pitcher, and a broken beer bottle. But that would be kind of cool. Jesus, our Savior, we talked about last week. Today we're doing Jesus, our Sanctifier. So that, that is actually not a cup. It looks a lot like a cup, though, right? It's actually called a laver. And I don't want you to think of a cup. I want you to think almost more like a big pedestal sink. If you've ever seen in a bathroom, it has a, a pedestal sink, has a column that comes up and then the bowl's on the top, right? That's what I want you to think of. It's not a cup, it's a laver. And a laver is something that you wash yourself in. So the imagery here is not of you drinking something, it's of you washing sin off daily. It's of you being cleansed and you being purified is the idea here of Jesus being our sanctifier. Now, before I get into the actual passage, I want to explain what I'm teaching and I want to explain what I'm not teaching. Okay, we believe and I believe in something called uh, being wholly sanctified. And I'll explain that in a minute. But before I get to that, I'm going to explain what I don't mean. There's a, there's a I would say it's a false teaching or a false doctrine called sinless perfectionism. It's the doctrine, it's the doctrine that over time you can eventually become totally sinless and you'll never sin. Some people actually believe that. Now, those people are so hard to be around. Can you imagine having to spend time with someone who thought they couldn't sin? Oh my gosh. I mean, because the minute you tell them like, you hurt my feelings or I think you are wrong, they're like, I, c- I couldn't have. You're too sensitive. I couldn't be wrong because I've achieved, achieved perfect Sinless perfectionism. So that is a doctrine that some churches and some denominations believe in. I don't believe in it because I've never met a person that fit that qualification. And I'm nowhere near it myself. Uh, other than Jesus, no one has ever lived a sinless, perfect life. And, and I'm pretty confident no matter how much you read your Bible and pray and fast, you're not going to get there either. Because if there's one thing I've learned about reading my Bible, praying and fasting, is that sometimes even when I do that, I just get real arrogant about that. You know, what? I, and then the pride is still in there. So here's the good news. You're going to be fighting sin until you die. And I, I'm, here's my advice. Keep fighting. Because the minute you stop fighting, you've given up and you've resigned yourself to sin. It is a battle. And if it's not a battle, that means you're not warring against sin. So just... I want to help you set the expectation here. You will be dealing with this until you die. Now, hopefully you're dealing with it in victory. It's a battle that you're winning more often than a battle that you're losing. But it's a battle nonetheless. Everybody got that? So we don't believe in sinless perfectionism. Okay? And man, if you ever start believing it, you're going to be so annoying to be around. And everyone will tell you how... Sinful and imperfect you are. In fact, you have my permission to tell those people. Uh, Now, here's what we do believe. If you'll put uh, the next slide up, Jared. This is 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 through 24. I absolutely love this passage. If you've been around True Vine for a while, I probably preach on this passage once a year. I try not to preach the same sermon once a year. But man, there's so much in this passage that we could spend a ton of time on it. But this is Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica. Everybody say Thessalonica. Okay. That's, uh, that's the, the city they were in. And Paul gives them a ton of advice. This is actually like a, like, almost like it reads as if it's a long to-do list. Paul says, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Now, uh, If you read verses 16 through 22, it is very much like a list of things to do. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Uh, Do not quench the spirit. Test all prophecies. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. When I read through those lists, I kind of think that the the writers of the Bible, whether it's the gospel writers or Paul or whoever, I kind of think that sometimes they're setting us up almost setting us up for exasperation. Like When I read the Sermon on the Mount, I get like two-thirds of the way through, and I'm like, I will never be able to do this. Which I think that's actually the point sometimes, is to get you to the place where you realize you'll never be able to do this on your own. You're going to need outside help. And that outside help is the Holy Spirit. So after Paul gives us this list, rejoice always, oh, I'm already done. We're only one deep and I'm done. Pray continually, oh, now I'm over 2. Give thanks in all circumstances, struck out. You know, like, uh, that, that list is literally impossible for you to fulfill perfectly. And I think Paul's writing it so that you can get to the end of your own, like, arrogance and self-will. Then, in verse 23, he says, may God himself sanctify you. It's pre- he's pretty much setting you up to say, you can't do this, so God's going to have to do it for you. And that's, that is an important piece of the idea of sanctification. It's that God sanctifies you, you don't sanctify yourself. This is a trap that many Christians fall into. I myself fell into it, I'm still getting out of it, that you are saved by grace, but sanctified by works. Here's the truth, you are saved by grace, you're sanctified by grace. Both of those are grace. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a level of effort on your part, and I'm gonna talk about that later, but both of these are 100% works of grace that Jesus empowers you to cooperate with. So you are saved by grace, you are sanctified by grace. Jesus is the Savior. I mean, we're all smart enough that we would never say that we're the Savior, right? Well, we should also be smart enough to know that we're also not the sanctifier. Jesus is the sanctifier. All we do is respond to him as he leads us in this process. Have I lost anyone on this word sanctification yet? We all all good? Okay. Sanctification is the experience of being made holy. He's the one that cleans us up. That makes our life more like him that's sanctification okay he's the one that makes us different and unique we do not do that ourselves if you try to do it uh, I call that behavioral modification and if you try to do it on your own you will just become self-righteous I'm going to probably come back to them a little bit but it says in verse 23 May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. And then in verse 24, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. So this process of being made holy is actually not something you're going to be able to muster up on your own strength by trying harder. And as much as I believe in discipline, you will not be able to discipline yourself into holiness. You can't do it. I I believe in discipline. I value it. I love it. But you are, you're not going to be able to self-will yourself into righteousness. Your self-will is actually the reason you're screwed up. And I'm screwed up. I'm not saying you're screwed up. We are all screwed up. Because our own willpower is weak. And sometimes when your willpower is strong is when it shouldn't be. It's called being stubborn. Willpower is what gets us into trouble. And so we don't really want our will... To be independent of God's will. So, first and foremost, God sanctifies us. We do not sanctify ourselves. Jared, if you could go to the next slide. Uh, uh, Sorry, go one more. This is a word, a name for God, Jehovah M'Chadesh. Sorry, I'm just not used to doing it with the the hugh in it. There's several places in the Old Testament where this name of God is used. I just listed the first two references, Exodus 31:13 and Leviticus 28, and it means the Lord who sanctifies, Jehovah M'Chadesh. I did it pretty well that time. Chadesh is the Hebrew word for holy. So, like the Holy Spirit, now I'm just uh, clearing my throat, is Ruach HaKadesh. Uh, That's the Holy Spirit. So the Lord who sanctifies or the Lord who makes you holy. This is not a New Testament idea. It goes all the way back to Exodus. That God is the one who makes you holy. You don't make yourself holy through behavioral modification. Now this idea of behavioral modifications. This is kind of what I thought the Christian life was for the first couple years. Just be better. Just be a good person. Give your life to Jesus and become a good person. Don't don't swear don't lie don't listen to foul music don't uh, make sure you give X amount of money give to the homeless don't argue with people don't look at pornography don't and, and I had just had this list that was really getting longer and longer over time and the more pastors and preachers I heard to the more confusing the list got actually because each one had a different spin to put on it. Um, behavioral modification is not the goal of the gospel. Okay, The goal of the gospel is not to take bad people and make them good. It's to take dead people and make them alive. It's to take people that are completely and utterly lost and screwed. And make them sons and daughters of the living God. I mean, the gospel is way bigger than some sort of 12 step. The help self-help program that over time you'll just get better it is a you were dead now you're alive a moment which kind of leads me to the next section uh, of, of first uh, Thessalonians 5 23 if you can back up two slides for me Jared thank one more this idea here not only does God sanctify us but he tells us how he's going to sanctify us he says he's going to do it through and through I think thorough, man. He's, like not leaving, he's not leaving a single part unturned. There's no part that he's not going to touch. It says that may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless. Now, I think that the way he lines that up, spirit, soul, and body, is actually important. Um, every single one of you, every single human being ever, has had and has a spirit a soul and a body okay those are the three components of a human being a spirit a soul and a body we all get the body part right and i think most people unless you're like a secular humanist or an atheist most people would say that there's a there's an immaterial part of you which would be either identified as the soul or the spirit some people say soul and spirit are the same thing i think they're different The soul is different than the spirit. And so, uh, well, primarily because this passage says they're different. Uh, And also in Hebrews 4.12, it says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates to the division of soul and spirit. I also seem to think that when the Bible uses different words for things, maybe they are different. I mean, soul in Greek is uh, suke, which is the word we get psychology from, the study of the soul spirit in greek is pneuma spirit in hebrew is uh ruach and i don't think i know soul in hebrew but uh in any event when david writes the psalms a lot of times he talks about his soul and if you read through the psalms and every time david's talked about his soul it's kind of emotional it's either it has to do with his heart or his thought the very core of your being is the spirit okay the spirit is your connection with God. It's where your spiritual gifts operate from. It is your true identity. When you read the New Testament, it says all these really lofty, ambitious things about you, know, you being one with Christ and having the mind of Christ. And you're like, I don't feel like that. It's speaking about your spirit. The fact that you don't feel like it means your soul still needs a little work. Because your soul is where your feelings come from. So your, your spirit is your, Ron Walborn was here two or three weeks ago and he said it's your God consciousness. It's where you connect with God. So let me explain this really quick. You got, hang with me. You've got to put your thinking caps on and focus. All right? You might want to sit up straight and pinch yourself to wake up. All right. Adam and Eve. Ru, Miss Ruth just fixed her glasses. She, yes. She takes this seriously, man. She doesn't play around. All right. You're, Adam and Eve were born with a body, a soul, and a spirit. Okay? All three of those things were completely alive and functioning without sin. God told them, you can eat of any of the trees in the garden, just don't eat of this one. If you eat of this, you're going to die. Surely you will die. Well, what did they do? They ate of it anyway. And as soon as they ate of it, they both fell over dead, right? Oh, good. I didn't catch you on that trick question. Right. They did not fall over dead. Because the death he was talking about was first and foremost a spiritual death that later worked its way out in their body. But the minute they ate that fruit, they died spiritually. That spirit part just went dark. They had a dead spirit. Their soul was still alive. Their body was still alive. And those would both eventually perish as well. But their spirit died the moment that they sinned. And, you know, I just cut down a branch of a tree on our block. I'm the only person that knows how to operate a chainsaw on our block, apparently. The the branch was dying from the inside out. There was like bugs and goobers in there and it was killing it from the inside out, right? It was rotting from the, it was hollow and like black and wet inside this branch when we cut it down. When it came down, all this gunk spilled out. That's kind of the picture that you have here. When your spirit is disconnected from Christ and when it's dead, it kind of rots from the inside out. So when your spirit is not regenerated or it's dead, it, it does have a negative impact on your emotions, And then that can further have a negative impact on your body. Okay? So, Adam and Eve were born with living spirits. Through sin, they died. And then all of us flipped it. We were born spiritually dead. Our bodies were born alive. Our souls were born. And we were born with a spirit that was dead. Kind of a stillborn spirit. And then, so, when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus in John 3, and he says, you must be born again... He's talking about your spirit. And what happens at the moment of conversion, the moment you follow Jesus, is that the Holy Spirit goes and like, jump-starts your spirit and brings it back to life. And then the Holy Spirit lives in connection with your, whole, your spirit forever. So if you read the New Testament, you'll see sometimes it talks about the spirit with a capital S, which is referring to the Holy Spirit. Other times it talks about the spirit with a lowercase s, which is your human spirit. So you are a spirit you don't have a spirit you are a spirit you have a body most of us look at we we identify ourselves as the body right I mean if someone says like oh who is that visitor at church we describe them by their body not their spirit right I don't even know how I would do that anyway but like yes their spirit was warm that sounds weird but So that's the spirit. It's your connection with God, your spiritual gifts, your true identity. If you don't know Jesus, that's dead. That's that's what is born again the moment you come to know Jesus. Now your soul are where your thoughts, your emotions, and your decisions or choices reside. Okay. So uh, what you think about, the, the thought life, how you feel in your emotional life, the decisions, the decisions that you make, those come from your soul. The soul is not inherently bad, but it's also not inherently good. It's kind of a hostage to the body and the spirit, whoever wins that day, right? And then your body, I think generally everyone understands the body. It's your organs, your bones, your blood, assuming you have all those things. If you don't have any of those, we should talk. Uh... But that's your body, your physical material being, right? So you are not a body with a soul in a spirit. You are a spirit that has a soul in a body. You understand that? Because your body's going to die. And your soul's going to get changed, but your spirit is going to live eternally. Now you're going to get a new body if you know Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Uh, I'd like mine to be a little more streamlined. But, uh, uh, body, soul, and spirit. Now I, I, I want you to understand this. So I'm going to throw some stuff at you. All right. Your brain is part of your body, but your mind is part of your soul. You got it? Yep. Your brain is part of your body, but your mind is part of your soul. Cause your mind, you can't open, crack your head open and find your mind. But I could find your brain. All right. Your heart. What we mean when we say heart is generally your soul. Okay? Now, sometimes we, when we say heart, we're actually referring to the spirit. But generally, what we mean is your soul, your, your feelings, right? When the New Testament tells us to live in the spirit, it's, it's saying that... It's saying that to live from the place of the spirit, that should be the guy calling the shots in your life because that's what's in perfect union with Jesus. It's the safest place for you to live from in your life. Your spirit is connected with Jesus. Your soul, it might be that day, but it might not be the next day. And then your body. So when, uh, when Paul says that God is going to sanctify you, body, soul, and spirit, There is a whole... I mean, you could really unpack that. So I want to talk about really quick the sanctification of the body, what that might mean. I'm going to work from the inside out. uh, From the outside in, I should say. The sanctification of the body. Okay, hit yourself. You got a body, right? God wants to sanctify that. How might he sanctify it? Two main ways that I think of are your physical health and your sexuality. I'm going to talk about both of those. God wants your body to be sanctified. Now, you might think that me talking about that is a little bit ironic. I have a thyroid issue. I don't know if I do, but that's what I say. Uh, You know, I'm, I'm qualified to say this. Treating your body poorly is a sin. Now, I'm also qualified to say... That not everyone who, does, who doesn't look like Ryan Gosling and whoever some fancy-looking girl would be. Uh, I don't know. Julia Roberts. There, I'm going way back. Uh, you know, if just because you don't look like a movie star doesn't mean you've sinned, though, because there are other issues. There are medical issues. There are, some people process food faster. I can eat the same food that Kendra eats and she wears tiny little jeans and i have to wear a tent uh, you know there okay i want to clarify this being overweight is not a sin because there are other issues that can factor into that but gluttony is a sin let, let me further show how this how this is these three things are intertwined have you ever heard of soul food it's food your body doesn't need, but your soul wants it. Your soul shouldn't be telling you what to eat. Right? Your body should. So then we get into this thing of emotional eating. Yeah, a lot of agreement on this one. Okay, good. Yes. That's how we get into this, that's how we get into this issue of emotional eating. Your soul wants comfort and finds it through your body through stuffing yourself with potatoes and cheese and other delicious things that I want this minute. It's it's soul food, but your soul has no business deciding what food you should be eating. That's the prerogative of your body. You got that? Your body needs fuel. Your soul doesn't need a pat on the back with your mashed potatoes with extra butter. All right. So the sanctification of your body has to do with your physical health. It can be holy to go jogging. I mean, I I personally have a hard time believing that, but I think it's true. Exercise can be holy. A diet can be a spiritual discipline that I will not be doing, but you can. The the treatment of your physical body is actually a part of your sanctification. Then, beyond that, your sexuality, because that's still your body, right? Your sexuality is not off-limits to God. You, know, you might want to treat it as some part of your life that's completely independent from your spirituality, but God does not see it that way, and he didn't design you that way. He designed... Oh, but we're real quiet in here, as it always does when I talk about this. No one wants to hear me talk about sex anyway. You, you liked it when I was talking about mashed potatoes. <laughs> your sexuality is not separate from your spirituality. In the the Bible, there is no distinction. And so the way that your sex life functions still needs to come under the authority of God through this book. Is, Is there any... It is super quiet in here. You all know what I'm saying. I mean... I don't know what to say. It's pretty clear. If if you're not married to someone from the opposite gender, you just need to take a cold shower. Then I don't know what to tell you. You know, I was born liking ladies, but I made a decision at some point that I was going to like one lady. And until I married her, I wasn't with any ladies. And I've only ever been with one lady. And uh, she's sitting back there holding the the produce of one of them with a kid. You know, that wasn't exactly easy. She was all over me. It was easy for me. I'm just saying she was like really pressuring me. Uh, If anyone has a couch I can sleep on tonight, that would be great. Listen, I don't care how you were born or what your loins are telling you you want, you have to make it. If you're a Christian, you have to make a decision that you're going to bring it into agreement with scripture. And if you can't find a way to bring it into agreement with scripture, you're going to have to abstain for a while. You know, I I don't know how else to say it. There's no tiptoeing around this. If you can't find a way to gratify your your sexual desires, which are not necessarily wrong, but if you can't find a way to act on them within this scripture, you gotta just abstain. I had to abstain until I got married. I still have to abstain sometimes. <laughs> it's gonna be a rough ride home today. Uh, but I mean, that's the truth. The truth. The truth about that abstaining in marriage is just because you're in the mood doesn't, and your spouse isn't doesn't mean you can go find a side John. Yes, I said, side John. Yeah. And this is really, this is truly what it comes down to. When you get married, uh, your will and your desires have to change. Because if you come into marriage and say, I really want to be with 10 people, but I have to be with one, so I guess I'll just reluctantly live that way. You have to change your heart to say, I have to be with one, so I better just want to be with one. Right, your desire has to change. Oof, I don't have enough time to do the rest of this sermon. All right, so that's, that would have to apply to the sanctification of your body. Your soul, oh my goodness, this could be a two-day sermon, this soul thing. Your soul is your, your thoughts, um, your will or your decisions, and your emotions. I just got to say, your emotions are not the same thing as the Holy Spirit. I mean, you might feel something, but in that, that something you feel might be the Holy Spirit, or it might be that you're frustrated with your spouse, or it might be that you're frustrated with your job or your neighbor, if, or your kids. You're angry at your kids, and you're angry at your spouse, and so every verse you pray is about judgment. <laughs> you know, that's probably not the Holy Spirit telling you to pray that. That's probably your old screwed up soul that hasn't been fully sanctified yet telling you to pray that. And, uh, you know, your emotions are not the same thing as the Holy Spirit. Your emotions need to come into agreement with with God through Scripture. And so does your thought life. If your thoughts are very different for what Jesus would have you think about, you're going to... That's the beginning, man. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said... Uh, it's not enough to just not kill your neighbor, but don't even hate your neighbor. Or it's not enough to not cheat on your spouse, don't even lust after someone else. He's going after the thought life because he knows that's where it starts. No one ever went from, I've never thought about cheating on my spouse, but I'm going to do that today. No one ever did that. It's months and years of thinking about it. And then the opportunity presents itself. So if you can stop it at the the, the, the thoughts, you'll never... Step over that line of actually acting on it. And so the thought life is important. Um, There's a passage from Romans 12 that kind of talks about both the body and the soul. If you can go to the two slides down, Jared, it should be the last slide. This passage hits both the body and the soul. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Sacrifice means you might have to just... Suffer a little bit for Jesus. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So presenting your physical body as a sacrifice is a spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So he's telling you to present your bodies to God as a sacrifice. You know, a sacrifice is generally dead. Dead things don't get what they want. They're offered to God. And that your mind would be renewed. Okay, That that the way you think is different. Have you ever had one of those moments where you hear something or you read something or you see something and like this light goes off in your head and like, oh, I see it totally differently now. And it changes the way you see it for the rest of your life. That's the renewing of your mind. And that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do through Scripture through encounters with God, he wants to renew your mind so that you think differently now than you thought a year ago. That your, your philosophies, your thought processes, the paradigms that you see are different. All right, finally, the sanctification of the spirit. Now, this is a little different. The sanctification of the spirit is not so much that your spirit gets stronger, because your spirit is as strong as it'll ever be now, it's because it's in union with the Holy Spirit. The sanctification of the Holy Spirit is actually about making that the central driving force of your life. That Christ's spirit in union with your spirit is what calls the shots in your life. So when you feel prompted by the Holy Spirit to fast, your spirit says, sorry, body, not today. Or the Holy Spirit wakes you up in the middle of the night and says to pray, your spirit says, sorry, body, but we're gonna, you're not going to get enough sleep tonight. Or when your soul says to curse someone and hate them and not forgive them, your spirit says, you know that's not right. Do you understand? The sanctification of the spirit means the centralization of the spirit, that everything comes from that. Yeah. That's what it means to live in the spirit, to have that be the driving force of your life. Because your spirit is perfectly united with Christ's spirit. Now... I want to, this is kind of what I want to wrap up with. i got to get this idea across here. We submit ourselves to the, the sanctification experience by putting ourselves in God's presence. If you go home today with a checklist, I did not do my job. This is not behavioral modification. This is not, here's a couple things to work on. You're not sanctified by yourself, you don't, and I said that a lot at the beginning of the sermon. You do not sanctify yourself, you do not make yourself holy. You are sanctified by Jesus. So what you have to do then is get close to Jesus and let him sanctify you. This is the best way I could explain it. I don't know if it's a very good illustration, but if you ever like in the summer to get a tan, you cannot tan yourself. You can't just be like, uh, oh, now I'm tan. That's not how it works, okay? You have to expose yourself to, to the sun or a tanning bed and let that change you. Now, there is a, there is a level of effort there. If you want to get tanned, you do have to go lay on the beach, go to a tanning bed. You've got to go outside. There's a level of effort on our part. But no matter how much effort you put in, if it's, still a sun, if it's a cloudy, rainy day, I don't care how much effort you put in. Right? right. If they unplug the tanning bed, it doesn't really matter how much you paid. There is, a, there is a level of effort, but listen, the effort comes in putting yourself in the right position. Not, not forcing yourself to change. And when it comes to sanctification, there is effort, but the effort is not trying to be better. The effort is, how can I put myself in God's presence today? What will I need to change about my schedule? What will I need to change about my values so that today I can be exposed to the radiation of the Holy Spirit for an hour? That's what will change you. Not, oh, I better read read through the whole Bible this year. I better give X amount of money, or I better pray for an hour every day. That kind of stuff will ultimately frustrate you. But if you say, how, how can I put myself in front of the glory of God so that I get a changed by Him? That's where the effort comes in, putting yourself in the right position. That's the effort of sanctification from the human side. All the other work is done by God. You just put yourself in the right spot. You position yourself. Does that make sense? Okay, good. Now, uh, Courtney, do you want to come up? There is this, uh, you know, the guy that I get most, most of this stuff from, or much of it from, is a, he's old and dead. His name is A.B. Simpson. He says that when it comes to sanctification, we are the capacity, he is the supply. Mm-hmm. And you will be as filled with the Holy Spirit as you are willing to be. You know, if you have a small capacity, then that's what you'll get. And I think every one of us can increase in capacity. You know, like if I take a big, if I took one of these pots with the plants over there and I filled it full of like rocks and dirt, I'm not, I can put water in it, but I couldn't put as much water as if I emptied it. Right? There's other stuff taking up room. And so the way you increase your capacity in many ways is just by getting rid of other stuff that's taking up room that the Holy Spirit could be taking up. And that 's those two things are primarily sin and pain. Sin and pain take up a lot of room that the Holy Spirit could be using in your life and I think we 've talked enough over the years of how to deal with those two things. This is what I want to I want to ask you to do. this is uh, pretty simple if you feel like if you know that you need the holy spirit to be to continue or jesus to continue the sanctifying work i'm going to ask you to stand up but not yet please do not stand up because well it's in the bible so i guess i need it i mean i do that all the time if someone says like stand up because you need to have more faith of jesus well i don't really feel it but yes i know that's right so i'm going to stand up That's not who I'm looking for today. Today, I want you to stand if this is something that God has been doing in you since before this morning. If this is something the Holy Spirit has been prompting you on for the last couple days or weeks or months or years, I want you to stand because I think that the Holy Spirit is up to something and and that's what I wanna focus on today. So if this idea of Jesus sanctifying you is something that's been, had some momentum prior to this morning, would you stand? So here's what uh what I want you to do then. I'm going to unleash you to be the ministry team. The, and I'm speaking to the whole congregation, whether you're standing or sitting. I am commissioning you today to be the ministry team. We don't have any special badges or anything like that. We're training. I'm going to ask you to pray for one another. I kind of didn't expect this many to be stand up. So I thought we'd have more people sitting down to pray, but we're outnumbered. So you're going to have to pray for one another that you would surrender and allow the Holy Spirit to fill you and Jesus to sanctify you. So Courtney's going to sing for us a little bit, lead us in this. But I just find someone nearby. They're probably going to have to pray for you and you're going to have to pray for them. But you and that's goes for anybody in the room, you are the ministry team this morning. All right. So Everybody should get with someone and and be praying. You can get in groups of two or three or four. I don't really care how big the groups are. Just get with someone.